Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Whether this is a completely strange or beautiful statement depends on our perspective. This teaching from Jesus is just the kind of talk that led to the early Christians being accused of cannibalism. If you were curious about these new people called Christians meeting in your neighborhood and you were slyly peeking through the uh, shutters into the worship service at the house church to hear them reading this during worship, why wouldn't you think they were a little kooky? We all are still a little kooky, though, aren't we? But stay for the whole service, the whole service of word and table, and you may begin to recognize that God has not only come near to creation, but near to the creatures, near to us, as near as the supper table, and even much nearer than that. The insight I want to share with you today is a simple change of perspective about what happens when we celebrate communion. Rather than hold up a ground-level view of communion that we typically privilege, I want to hold up an aerial view for all of us to see. The ground-level view has to do with what we are doing when we take the Lord's Supper. The aerial view, on the other hand, has to do with what God is doing when we take communion. Our passage for today in John 6 reveals a subtle change in perspective that can make all the difference for how we understand what's happening when we eat the bread and drink from the cup. In the first several verses of our text, Jesus describes what happens from the ground view. At this ground view, Jesus holds up a mirror to show us what we're doing. When we eat from the bread and drink from the cup, we're consuming the flesh and the blood of Jesus. We are consuming the very life of God, taking the life of God into our own life, into our bodies. We come to the table to consume God's eternal life. And we are responding to an invitation, not only to dine with God, but to become one with God and one with the forgiveness of God. But notice the order of the words. Let's do a little grammar lesson, shall we? Who is the subject and what is the object in the following sentence? I take communion. I am the subject. We are the subject. Communion is the object. We are the agents, the doers, the ones who act, the elements on the table, the bread and the cup are passive. They sit still and wait for us to take them. This is the way the words run in each of the verses of our passage today, almost all of them. Jesus invites us to be the subjects, to take and to eat. You eat the flesh, he says. This is what I mean by the ground-level perspective. The horizontal view by itself doesn't reveal the whole picture. Then comes the insight. Jesus says in verse 58, This is the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus flips the perspective from horizontal to vertical. 
from ground to aerial. He switches the subject and object. Now the bread is the subject, the one acting. This bread from heaven is on its way to us. We did not cause it to come. We did not dream it to be what it is. This bread is grace. It comes from outside of us. It approaches us, as Karl Barth said of the word of God, like an arrow from a foreign shore. Now, if I may put the grammar lesson aside for a moment and speak plainly. At the communion, we consume the bread and the wine, yes. But even more, the bread and the wine consume us. Our response of faith is just that, a response. It follows a more foundational act that God has done. Our response comes second. More than that, more than what we're doing about God, communion has to do with what God has done for us. The grace happens first. The eternal life in this bread is a gift. At the table, we are not the primary actors. We are the forgiven recipients. We take and eat, yes. We do this in remembrance, yes. We consume, yes. But more importantly, at the table, we are being consumed by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We feast on what God has already done for us in Jesus on the cross. Now, if so far you are thinking to yourself, ah, well, maybe the sermon will be better next week. <laughs> Remember that conversations like this used to be newsworthy. Once upon a time, a, a German nobleman named Philip I arranged a conversation between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, or Zwingli. Uh, this politician wanted these Christians to settle this argument because he had some other things in mind for them to do and they needed to stop fighting. So he got Luther and, and Zwingli together and they called it the Marburg Colloquy, which just means conversation at Marburg. And uh, they had a conversation. They had 15 points they tried to agree upon, but one of the points they did not. And that was whether Jesus Christ was really physically present in the elements of communion. And Luther said, yes, he is present. And Zwingli said, uh, not really. It depends on your definition of is. And Luther said, is means is. And Zwingli said, eh, but does it really? And on and on like this they went. Is means is. No, okay. Is, is. Is not as much. And they ended their conversation without agreeing about whether Jesus is present or not physically. All that's to say how we think about communion has at times altered world history. So then we can be confident that how we think about communion today can, at the very least, change how we think about God and change how we live our lives. It comes down to our point of view. Before we consume the body and blood, the body and blood consumes us. 
Jesus said, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. By faith, we aim our sights on the life and love of God in Jesus Christ. But all the more, the life and love of God in Jesus is like a single point in the universe with a massive gravitational pull that we simply cannot escape. Try as we may, the force is simply too strong. Whether we deserve to be in Jesus' company or not, he draws us ever closer across our soul's existence. We may even rebel against him and swim in the other direction. We may even convince ourselves that we've made some progress in increasing the distance between him and ourselves, but that's always an illusion. We turn around to see we've not only made no progress, but that over time he's actually gained on us. There are two images of God consuming us in Jesus that I want to leave with you. The first is of Jesus comparing himself to a mother hen. You remember when he laments over Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her brood of chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Nevertheless, she continues gathering us. This is what God is doing at the communion table. She, she opens her wings to us, to her vulnerable children, and calls us to her table. She opens her wings to us and calls us to her side. Then she overshadows and envelops us. She guards and protects us. She keeps us safe and warm. She consumes our presence by her own real presence. In the bread and wine, she draws all of us to herself. The second image of God consuming us in Jesus is of the forgiving Father. Even if you aren't familiar with the Bible or with this parable, you must have heard of the parable of the prodigal son. I remember a professor once asking us in class about this parable. Which character in this parable are you? The wayward son, the well-behaved older child, or the forgiving father? And one by one, he called on us in the class, which one are you? And all these seminarians were saying, well, I feel like I'm the older brother. Seminarians. And I suppose I felt like the older brother too, but when it got to me, so many, so many people said older brother that I was like, you know, I'm going to shake things up a little bit. <laughs> I said, well, I, you know, right now I feel like the prodigal son. Why do you feel like you're the prodigal son? I said, because I know in spite of my best efforts, and I've tried, remember the older brother part? I just cannot save myself. In this way, we are all the little rebels who cannot save ourselves. One way or another, we squander our inheritance, perhaps over the course of a day, 
or a month or a lifetime, we make our feeble attempts to go our own way and to make a life for ourselves without God's help. But now, look at the Father. He's coming to you from far away. He sees you coming already. He jumps down from his perch on his porch. Now he's running to you. You've never seen such joy on a human face as you see in his. He moves so swiftly that the tails of his housecoat have lifted up and are horizontal with the ground as though he's wearing a cape. With an almost reckless stride, he covers the distance and closes it. His arms open wide to you as he comes near. He embraces you and lifts you up off your feet. He pulls your head close to his heart. You can hear his heart beating, and you can feel your own pulse too. Then he won't let go. And he holds you so tightly for so long, you can begin to feel that this is really real. He's not angry with you after all. He just wants to be with you. As you both catch your breath and you let the tenderness of the moment sink in, now you can feel your pulse beginning to sink with his, and your hearts begin beating together as one. This is what happens at communion.